When was a moment your hope or pursuit of the perfect Christmas began to unravel? And maybe that was a time that you were very young and idealistic, and I can remember being going to Barton Creek Mall and sitting on Santa's lap, and I went through all the list of things that I wanted, but this is probably like the early, early Enneagram 2 showing up. And Santa said, is there anything else that you want? And I'd gone through my list, uh, but he is asking for more, right? So then I just start looking around and like they had big like, you know, oh, there's a, a rocking horse. So I'd like a rocking horse. It's like, okay, is that it? Anything else? And they're looking around, oh, there's a big airplane hanging. I would like an airplane. You know, he's just asking. I'm just trying to meet the need that Santa <laughs> is clearly presenting. And so I think eventually he realized that that's what I was doing and he stopped asking. Uh, but I'd asked for a lot of things that weren't on the list, right? And so that Christmas when I got there and there was not the plane or the rocking horse and several other things that I had added, ad lib sort of last minute, it's a disappointing, disappointing Christmas. We, we all bring different levels of expectations, frustrations, resentments uh, for the ways things have raveled and unraveled and unfolded during the Christmas season. And that's very similar to, I imagine, what was happening the first Christmas with Joseph and Mary. Our scripture reads, now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. We immediately are privy to information that Joseph likely does not have. In Matthew's narration, we are let in on the reality that, yes, Mary is pregnant, but this pregnancy is a result of the Holy Spirit. Um, and this is something that is connected to all that has come earlier in Matthew in verses 1 through 17, where we get this genesis or genealogy of who Jesus is connecting to Abraham and to King David. Uh, and it's tracing all of the ways that the coming of this child is connected to the larger story of God through scripture. And yet there's this significant hiccup that happens, right? You've taken all of this intentional time to show the ways that everyone is related and connected and how we can trace this genealogy. And at the decisive moment, Jesus' own parents, instead of being able to say, you know, begat Joseph and Joseph begat Jesus, it's kind of short-circuited. And instead, we get the husband of Mary who bore Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Matthew takes the virgin birth as a given. It's not something that though our passage is focused on it, that Matthew is trying to somehow prove or do some apologetic to say, see, it really was a virgin birth, so now you must believe. For Matthew, the virgin birth is problematic in other ways because Matthew is trying to show how this story of God is finding its fulfillment in the life of Jesus and in the beloved community that Jesus will create and call us to. And this virgin birth may have been the given that Matthew took without any questions, 
But he knows that there will be other questions that are arising for people about what all of this means. That the Messiah does not come to earth through Joseph's loins, but only his lineage is a powerful undoing of business as usual. This new human one, the son of man, does not come from the old patriarchy or status quo. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, Holy Envy, talks about the challenges that we face, especially when we're having conversations across different ideologies and religious and spiritual paths. And she says this, although I can see the places where religious truth claims collide, this does not bother me as much as it could. I am far more interested in how people live than what they believe. When other Christians threaten or disappoint me, I work as hard to see God in them as in the people of other or no faiths. It helps to remember that these are often the same Christians whom I threaten and disappoint in equal measure. The only clear line I draw these days is this. When my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor. That self-canceling feature of my religion is one of the things I like best about it. Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. She reminds us that when trying to negotiate challenging truth claims and trying to understand the complexity of life, even I imagine today as we celebrate uh, Harmon and all that his life and family and ministry has meant to our community, I'm sure we feel equal measures of joy and laughter and excitement along with some sorrow and sadness and heaviness. And what does the conversation look like inside of our lives collectively and individually as we navigate through all of that? And how do we prioritize our, ability, our call to love ourselves and to love our neighbor well? Our scripture goes on to talk about in verse 19, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. Ultimately, it is this patriarch Joseph who could have ended things abruptly. He could shame Mary, perhaps if he was extremely vindictive, even attempted to have her executed publicly, as some of the scriptures in the Hebrew Bible would warrant or recommend. There was lots probably weighing on Joseph's heart and mind that he was trying to navigate in the complexity of this. On top of just the general, I wasn't anticipating that the person who I was betrothed to, that I was engaged to, was going to be pregnant, right? But despite whatever personal challenges emotionally, mentally, he might have been wrestling with in that regards was also trying to navigate, well, what do scriptures say? And he's looking at scripture, like, oh, that's that. I don't know if I like what that says, but what are people going to say about me if I don't follow what these scriptures seem to point to? What will be my social status? What will be the communal consequence if I don't lean in heavy to this? Will, will people say that I, I thought God was just love, but that I forgot about God's justice? That's Something that we hear from time to time. I remember being a part of a church in Waco, and when I was 
working with Baylor University as a campus chaplain, numerous people from numerous undergraduates would go visit the church that I was a part of and usually be there for two or three weeks. And the number one thing I heard from them when they were leaving, deciding not to stay as a part of that community was, well, the music was great and everything, but the problem is like the sermons, they just talk about love. Just love, just love, like all the time. Like I get it, God's love, but like I want to hear the rest of the gospel, you know, or something like that as if somehow we had already gotten some PhD in what it means to embody the cruciform love of Jesus Christ and we're ready to run on to much more complicated matters. Joseph might have been wrestling with this very thing. Certainly, no matter what he decides, there are going to be significant consequences for him and even more significant consequences for Mary. Our scripture is silent. I also just want to acknowledge it's possible that Mary shared with Joseph before he even has this dream. Hey, Joseph, in case you're wondering, like, I know it's a little awkward, but here's what happened. This is of the Holy Spirit. It's possible that she might have done that and perhaps Joseph believed her and perhaps he did not and we could understand either response pretty well. And perhaps Mary didn't share with him because she knew that it would just be too unbelievable. But ultimately our scripture wants us to know that Joseph has going to do what he believes is the just, the right thing. He is not here to shame Mary. He does not want blood or violence to rule the way. He seems to understand what it means as someone from the lineage of the son of David that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so Joseph is looking for a way to do what I'm sure he thought was the right and appropriate thing, but without bringing any further shame. So our scripture continues, verse 20, but just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Have you ever made a decision, firmed it up, filled yourself with resolve, steeled yourself that this is going to be the way things go no matter what, only to find that the ground seems to be shifting underneath your feet. When I was finishing up my time in seminary, I was trying to discern what my first full-time call in ministry was going to be. And a wonderful church in Houston, Uh, was in conversation with me about being an associate pastor there, and everything seemed to be really positive about this church, and as far as I know, uh, was. But in my own heart, I didn't have anything that seemed to be saying no, but I just didn't seem to have a lot of excitement or joy for it. I felt just kind of neutral, but this seemed like an opportunity that could not be passed up, and the search committee ultimately said, we want you to be the person we would like to recommend you uh, to be the the associate pastor for this position. Uh, And you have X amount of time to decide and then get back to us. And that time ended. And I didn't really feel like I had any major dreams or parting of the clouds or anything like that. 
And I still felt fairly neutral. And I just said, you know, I think sometimes that's just the way it is. And you've got to make a decision. And so I said, yes, I'm going to come and be your associate pastor. And for the next couple of days, I had such a gutting of myself emotionally. Uh, I I felt um, anything but happiness or joy. It was a very chaotic and turbulent time. It seemed like while I had been on the fence about this decision, uh, everything was pretty neutral. But just as soon as I got off that fence, it was like I stepped into chaos internally and turmoil. Uh, And so I remember going to that church that I was a part of in Waco and got there early because I just felt like garbage. And one of the pastors of that church coming up and saying, in more colorful language than I'm about to use now, Christopher, you look like crap. And I was like, I feel like crap because I had just had such an emotionally turbulent time. And by the end of that day, I'd called the church back to say, I know that I've told my family and my close friends and all of my mentors that I'm going to come to be your associate pastor. Uh, I can't do it. I, I, I've lost all sense of internal peace about this. And not that feelings are to be the only thing that guide us, but I had worked for several days to try to not say, oh no, I've done this. It'll be fine. It's fine. It's fine. And it's anything but fine. We often resolve to do things, to play certain roles in the world, in our life. And many times we don't really ever go back to revisit those. That becomes especially painfully clear in the holidays, right? When we find ourselves in these same dynamics within our family system that perhaps we've been inhabiting since we were in elementary school, where we're over-functioning or under-functioning, where we're trying to take on this person's emotional needs, or we're trying to stonewall ourselves off because we don't want to have to deal with any of the stuff that these people are bringing to the table. And we can just play out those same scripts over and over again. Recently, um, my therapist challenged me to that regard. I'm noticing as you talk about your life and your family that this seems to be coming up over and over and over and over again. And I wonder, my therapist asked me, what would happen if you would, next time you're around your family, just bring awareness to that to notice yourself when you find yourself slipping into that same pattern and perhaps to give yourself permission to allow yourself not to feel like you need to be and to do and to fill this place that may have served you well when you were younger but doesn't seem to be serving you well now. Our scripture continues to remind us that the in this dream, Joseph hears, son of David, do not be afraid. Joseph is told not to allow his fear to short-circuit what God is up to in this world. What was Joseph afraid of in taking Mary as his wife? That his future wife couldn't be trusted? That he would raise another man's child? Perhaps it was that others would say or were already saying terrible things about him and the couple. That he might lose social standing, that his family and friends would think him a fool? Was mercy simply too impractical? Was Joseph feeling caught between compassion and the conventional thinking of his community? 
Perhaps his fears, as I alluded to earlier, were rooted in his religious tradition. He might have been afraid that showing the maximum mercy conflicted with text in Deuteronomy demanding divorce and in some cases death for a betrothed who became pregnant. Was Joseph feeling stuck between his soul and what seemed like the strict demands of his sacred text? We know what Joseph is now just learning and the call is to not lean into our fear. Anuma Okora in her book, Silence, says, life's arbitrariness and God's unpredictability are not one and the same. This is why spiritual discernment and faith within community is a necessary element of perceiving and receiving holy disruptions. Part of discernment is listening for the invitations, both the unexpected and those that come from existing circumstances and relationships. Embracing God's invitations and disruptions will often, if not always, require our courage and trust. Fear and uncertainty do not occur only in the face of perceived danger. These feelings can also arise in the face of invitations that might call us to step out of our comfort zones. The message in the dream that Joseph has continues that Mary will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. To be saved from their sins means the people can once again collectively engage in God's justice, God's dream to bring flourishing and fullness to all the world can carry on. Jesus' name means Yahweh, Yah saves, God saves. And the anticipation had really been for a Messiah that was going to be this military national leader that would have raised up the Hebrew people, but probably at the expense of the surrounding nation. So while Messiah was definitely looked to to save, it would have been a curious thing for them that this is a Messiah who saves from sins. Now it is true that many of us come from a faith where sin was always talked about as personal often related to either sex or not submitting to authority. Uh, Authorities, many of us later found out to be abusing their power and further tragically, and how many times that power was abused in the assault of women and children, the impoverished and oppressed. It is true that a focus on the individual is for the benefit of institutions to stay in power. If we are primarily obsessed with saving our individual soul. We don't have a lot of time to begin dreaming of how we might collectively work together to bring about God's reign of love and justice in the world. And yet still, despite all of that, which is true in our time, but was also just as true in the time that Jesus came to earth, the message is that Jesus is here to save us from our sins. Jesus has come to save us from perilous misperceptions we have about God, love, ourselves, and others, as Jenna reminded us in her recent Advent homily. That shame, anger, and fuel might be considered 
fuel for a spiritual path is a misperception that Jesus wants to save us from, that there was ever anything you or I could do to make God love us more or less is a misperception that Jesus has come to save us from, that those we want to name as our enemies or actually our siblings is a misperception that has to be corrected. We have to be able to see each and every one of us as created in the beloved image of God. That who we are in terms of our education, vocation, and worth should be determined by a society that needs us incessantly consuming and pervasively producing is a misperception that holding on to our bitterness will keep us safe is a misperception. And Jesus has come to save us from all of this and more. Verse 23, Matthew refers to the Hebrew text of the prophet Isaiah. And though Matthew has just said that his name is to be Jesus, because he will save us from our sins, he then reaches to a passage in the Hebrew Bible that says, so name him Emmanuel, God with us. And it's kind of like, well, huh? What, what is that supposed to mean? This is like I'm trying to put together Ikea furniture and I can't quite figure out what goes where. Are you telling me to do this or to do that? Because I don't really understand how to resolve these things. And I want to simply suggest that in Matthew's gospel, what it means for Jesus to save us is that God is with us. That we have this in the inauguration of Jesus' first major sermon on the mount where he goes through the poor in spirit, the meek, those who are peacemakers, who are pure in heart, who if we were to be not as nice and flowery with our language as Jesus is saying, we'd probably say the outcasts, the betraggled, the rubes, the naive, the people that nobody wants to be like. But Jesus over and over again names them and says they are blessed that the happiness, the joy of God is somehow meeting them, even in this challenging, perplexing condition that they might find that God is with them, that those who socially and religiously had been told that God was far away, Jesus says, no, God is coming up close to you in this distress. And we see that not just as flowery words that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, but he lives it out in the people that he shares meals with, that he seeks out, that he makes time for throughout the Gospels. We see in Matthew 25, when Jesus gives the only clear picture in the Gospel of Matthew of what the judgment of all the nations, not individuals, of the nations will be at the end of all things, uh, that the way those nations that don't fare well, the deciding factor for them is that there were people who were hungry, who were unclothed, who were sick, who were imprisoned, and we failed to see that God was with them, that God is in them. And as nations, then we are wrecked. And of course, the very last words that Matthew has Jesus sharing in his gospel is, I will be with you always until the end of this age. 
from the beginning to the ending of the Gospel of Matthew, what it looks like when Jesus is saving is reminding us that no matter what, God is with us. That this idea that we have done something or can be something that can separate us, that violence can somehow solve our problems, that we need to hustle for our worthiness. These are all lies. And Jesus is saying, I'm already here. I'm with you. Awaken to this. Embrace this. Allow my love to wash over you. That's Jesus' just love. This past week's many of our staff were able to go to Christ in the Desert Monastery. And before we did that, we went to Ghost Ranch for one night, which was a place I had not been since 2014. When I was last at Ghost Ranch, uh, it was in the aftermath of one of my good friends from college who had been a roommate um, who had died by suicide. And I was really carrying deep grief and anger and sadness uh, with me into Ghost Ranch the first time I was there. And I would go to this prayer labyrinth in the middle of the night because I was really having a hard time getting any sleep and just walk it and walk it, hoping that somehow my body could find a wisdom or a healing that my heart and mind were struggling to be able to receive during that time. And I remember in the deep sadness and pain of that season, being at this labyrinth and asking God, where are you? And where were you for my friend and my, my former roommate? And, and how could this happen? And, and having no easy answers, no, no quick resolution, uh, just the sense that God was saying, I'm with you. And that was kind of annoying at the time, if I'm going to be honest. That was, uh, okay, well, I'm not even sure that I asked you to be, but uh, I guess you're here and I can't do much about that. And so it was interesting for me, eight and a half years later, to return to that place and to walk the labyrinth again and to be able to reflect more on how God had been with me in ways that I could not perceive and did not perceive then, but that God had not given up on me, that God doesn't give up on any one of us, that God's love and mercy continually pursue us. In verse 24, after all of this, Joseph awakes from his sleep, and he does exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He takes Mary as his wife. What does it take to move us beyond our reasonable resolutions into dreaming in league with God? I want to share this poem from John O'Donohue for a new beginning that perhaps invites us out of complacency in the status quo and into something new. In out-of-the-way places of the heart where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has quietly been forming waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time, it has watched your desire, feeling the emptiness growing inside you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered, 
heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered would you always live like this? Then the delight when your courage kindled and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. Though your destination is not yet clear, you can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning. That is at one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease and risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm for your soul senses the world that awaits you. Joseph was invited to dream of God's just love, which is a love of justice and righteousness. It is a cruciform love that lays itself down and will rise to overcome all that the tools of violence and death and empire can try to bring its way to say that is not the answer, but this beloved community of God's radical inclusiveness is enter in, join, dream again. Do not be stuck in those places. Let us pray. We are servants in the story of the nonviolent forgiving victim, the one born into poverty, powerlessness, and oppression. We are set apart to embody good news in solidarity with the forgotten, the discarded, and the alienated. We are makers of good trouble, muscles remembering the holy actions of ancient disruptors and unsettling scriptures. This is the very good news of God setting things right. This status quo breaking news beautifully embodied by Jesus living in mercy, laying down in cruciform love and rising to overcome violent sacrifice. Son of David incarnating and inaugurating a long awaited reign of radical love through the worn born among manure so we might know God with us in any mess. We pray this in the name of the creator who disrupts our death-dealing status quo, the holy human one who rescues us from alienation, and spirit who brings new life we do not need to fear. Amen.